What does the Bible teach about non-human entities? Think Squad, do you think you could answer that question right now? If your kids asked you, would you know what to say? While this might seem like some kind of fringe topic, it's actually a subject area that's growing in popularity in the culture at large. People want to know about things like angels, demons, aliens, the Nephilim mentioned in Genesis 6 and beyond, and a whole slew of other mind-bending entities. And of course, the fact is, the Bible actually has a lot to say about this topic. Those who can delineate the Bible's teaching on non-human entities are producing some really amazing, fascinating content right now. That's why I had Dr. Michael Heiser on this show back last year, and we talked about what everyone gets wrong about demons. And to date, it's been our most popular video. See, as a father, your kids are going to be wondering about these matters, and you don't want to leave them to the history channels, wild theories about ancient aliens, or other non-Christian sources to tell them non-biblical answers, because if the answers are non-biblical, if they're unbiblical, then they're untrue. You are your kid's primary disciple maker, and you should be the one answering their impossible questions. No matter how fringy or cringy or wild or weird they seem, if they have to do with the biblical worldview, dads, it's on us. And since you can't give away what you don't already possess, you and I are going to need some answers ourselves. This is why I've brought on Dr. Jonathan Sarfati for this episode. He was requested by one of our listeners, and I really believe he is the perfect person to have this conversation with. Dr. Sarfati has authored some of the most popular and powerful books on the issues of origins, genesis, strongly defending biblical young earth creation, and refuting the strongest arguments for evolution and millions of years. Jonathan is also a chess master and former New Zealand chess champion. He's truly a fascinating guy, and I think that you're going to really enjoy and be helped by what he has to say about Nephilim, dinosaurs, aliens, and how it all connects to fatherhood and how we lead our families in defending the truth of the Christian message. My name is Joel Sedecase. I'm a Christian apologist, husband, and the father of four kiddos. In 2009, I left my job in the business world to teach high school Bible at Chicago Hope Academy. That decision would set me on a journey that would bring me first to seminary to study apologetics and earn my master's in philosophy of religion, then into local church ministry, where I became a youth pastor and eventually an interim lead pastor, and then to joining Crew and launching the Think Institute in 2019. Now, I'm on a mission to help fathers lead their families in defending the Christian message. I don't have all the answers, but I'm determined to go find them. And through this show, I'm reporting back to you, the Think Squad, what I discover. Welcome to the Think Podcast. Really quickly before we start, if you have an interest in the intersection of fatherhood and apologetics, as I do, as well as philosophy, theology, and many, many leather-bound books, I want to let you know about our online community, the Think Squad group on Facebook. There, you can join hundreds of other Christ followers also on the same journey, 
We trade apologetic stories and strategies, discuss philosophical and theological questions. It's like a huge late night bull session in your favorite cigar lounge. And it's actually led to some real life hangouts as well. So check it out, the Think Squad Facebook group. Dr. Jonathan Sarfati, welcome to the Think Pod. Thank you for having me on. Oh, it's my pleasure. I've really been looking forward to this conversation. As I told you backstage, it was recommended or suggested by one of our listeners, a friend of the Think Institute and the Think mm-hmm. Podcast. And um, he told me that you would you would be a, a great guest. And mm-hmm. I, as soon as I announced that I might be having you on, everybody tried to get me to get you to debate different people. They're like, Oh, get him, get him, get him over here. Get him. So, uh, I'm glad, I'm glad. So what that tells me is that people, people view you as somebody who can hold your own in an intellectual, uh, well, I want to say chess match. Maybe that's a little too on the nose though, Mm -hmm. given your background. Yeah. Could you, could you tell us a little bit about your work and your fascinating background? Okay, I uh, was born in Australia, raised in New Zealand, went back to Australia to, to work for Creation Ministries. I've been in this country for 11 years. I, I became a U.S. citizen two years ago. Okay, uh, I have a, earned Ph.D. in physical chemistry from a secular university in New Zealand. It's an earned degree. It's not a degree mill. don't have those in New Zealand anyway. And I'm also a chess master, a retired chess master. I was once champion of New Zealand in chess, and I am actually an internationally recognized chess master. And sometimes I play uh, uh, chess simultaneously with many people at once, sometimes uh, without um, seeing the board. It's called blindfold chess, where you actually have to play from memory. Someone else is telling me what the guys are doing, and I'm telling this person what to make move to make on the boards so i do that from time to time it gets harder when you get older they get tired more easily yeah. <laughs> how old were you when you started playing chess oh, i think i started playing about 11 years old or so oh. um it's definitely a game for young people are getting younger and younger these days because of chess of, of computers and and super uh, programs and databases didn't have those in my day that's oh. why they're getting younger and younger the the, the, the top players that's interesting. You know, my son this morning was just playing chess against the computer. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah. So I, I, I guess he, maybe he's part of that phenomenon. Who knows? Hope so. But, yeah. but, uh, but that's very exciting. So, so you work. Um, your offices are based down in is it Mableton, Georgia? Uh, near, um, uh, Powder Springs, Georgia. Okay. Okay. Uh, about um, forty or so minutes west of Atlanta. I was in Brisbane, Australia, uh, the capital of Queensland, the state of Queensland in Australia. But I moved over to the uh, American offices. Okay. Got two granddaughters in, in Florida, which, which is why we moved over here. So much oh. easier to drive five hundred miles and fly nine thousand miles. Yeah. Yeah, that's, oh, that's great. Why'd you get into creation science? Well, I mean, uh, because a lot of the things I was learning in real science contradict to the dogma of evolution. Like, for instance, uh, during first-year geology, the head of paleontology said the fossil record does not support Darwinian evolution. It seems to support a series of divine creations. But then he went on to explain why he still believes in Darwinian evolution, despite what the, despite what the fossil record says. And various things in my chemistry class, um, the chemical reactions go in the opposite way from what you'd need to have for or for non 
living chemicals to form even the simplest living cells. So many uh, of the reactions go in the opposite way. So real chemistry mm. contradicts the dogma of Darwinian evolution, or at least the chemical evolution, the non-living chemicals to the first living cells called chemical evolution. And then there are biblical things as well, like because if you have long ages, uh, you have to have death before sin. The Bible is very clear in the New Testament and in Genesis 3 that um, death and suffering and disease came because of Adam's rebellion against God in the Garden of Eden. And we are all descendants of Adam. We share in his sin nature. And that's why Jesus, the last Adam, came to die and then rise physically from the dead to undo what the first man, Adam, did in the Garden of Eden. But if you have millions of years, you cannot help but have death and suffering and disease before Adam's sin, because that's where the fossil record comes in. If you have believed millions of years, you believe in rock layers forming slowly and gradual over that time, and those rock layers contain fossils, and fossils mean dead things, and often show evidence of, of animals tearing each other to bits, and gout, and osteoporosis, and yeah. bone cancer, and then God says in Genesis 131, everything here is very good. Right. So bone cancer is very good. Well, what's very bad if bone cancer is very good? But that's the logical outcome of trying to mix the millions of years with um, the biblical teaching. It just cannot be why done satisfactorily. It, why couldn't it just be – now, I'm playing devil's advocate. Okay, here. sure. It's, it's, I know you, you might not be familiar with the show. I'm a, a young earth creationist, and uh -huh. that's definitely the view we represent on this program. But to play devil's Taste. advocate, why couldn't it – why couldn't – Romans 5 be referring to human death, you know, okay. human sin, not, you know, right. human death. Okay, let's suppose that, that it is referring to human death. I tend to agree with that position, actually. The point is, according to the evolutionary dating method, you have human fossils dated to about 300,000 years old. So uh, even human fossils show death before any possible biblical date for Adam. You cannot stretch Adam's genealogies back to 300,000 years ago. There's no way you can do that. So that's where I think a lot of these old earthers have a blind spot that even human fossils uh, undermine their position. Romans 5 and human death is alone to, to undermine. And once you accept uh, the dating methods may not be right, then you've undermined the case for the millions of years anyway. But if you have millions of years, you have the dating methods, which put human fossils before Adam's sin. You, you can't escape it that way. Oh, that, that's that's really good. Yeah, that's... You're right, because once you, if you accept an old earth, even as like an old earth, when I think of old earth creationism, I think of Hugh Ross um, and that and that whole wing. Maybe you know, I've written a, whole, I've written a whole book on him, don't you? Uh, what's that? What's that one called? My book is called Refuting Compromise. It's available on creation.com. A very easy website to remember, creation.com. And my book yeah. is Refuting Compromise. And there's a point-by-point -point refutation of Hugh Ross, 400 and something pages, going into all the different issues about biblical exegesis, about the death and suffering, the origin of humanity, global versus local flood, big bang problems, radioactive dating. It covers all these things, the history of interpretation of Genesis 1 to 11, uh, going through the early church to, to medieval to reformers okay so i go through a lot of ground so i'm actually fairly familiar with that man yes okay well that's good because you know i was going to ask you what you would recommend uh you normally i do that at the end mm -hmm. you know what, what what would you recommend for people who want to take next steps but that's that's wonderful so refuting compromise and uh and you do get into that view so um now we're, we just we're talking about human death mm -hmm. and um, our topic today is is actually addressing inhuman, non-human 
superhuman or subhuman, depending on how you, how you view it. But, um, but everyone right now wants to know about the possibility of alien life. Mm -hmm, And then I also wanted to pick your brain today on the subject of the Nephilim. One place you can get hold of what I say about aliens is, in fact, my Genesis commentary, which is called the Genesis account. Uh, go creation.com uh, slash accounts. You get that book. Um, there's also creation.com slash academy, which is a 12-part teaching series based on the Genesis account, but with four different, um, a lot of different speakers from four different countries speaking there. And my one of my talks actually does touch on the Nephilim, the sons of God, the Bene, Elohim. Uh, so that's in the Genesis Academy. So that there is one place you can get it. And okay. in my book, I explain why I think that they are the offspring of fallen angels and human women. Okay, that's that's my view. It's not a salvation issue. It's not a um, if you disagree with me, it doesn't mean you're a, you're a non-Christian or you don't believe the authority of Scripture. I think people who have genuine high view of Scripture can disagree with me on this thing. I find it very hard to. I mean, I, I think people. When it comes to the age of the earth, the creation issue, um, the only way you get long ages is to have ideas outside of Scripture. You cannot get from, from Scripture alone, and you look at the church history of interpretation. They're all young earthers, just about. And young old earth views came in only because old earth views came in with so-called science. But when it comes to people who believe the authority of the Bible and a solid Scripture people, they can come up with different views. I think yeah. we are short of information there, but I think I do th- think the information we have uh, supports the angelic view why are people so fascinated with the topic of the nephilim well i guess uh, they want to see if that's actually compatible with alien life for or just it's a very interesting passage about possible supernatural things going on in, in early human history do you do you see the ancient myths from different cultures of the gods coming down and procreating with you know usually it is with uh you know uh human women do you see that as being a sort of vestige of what actually happened in history i think it could be i think that view is called euhemerism is that that sort of view that you have myths are based on something which happened in in reality but have got distorted and it's interesting that you have the offspring of these sons of god and these human women are called the men of renown because they actually got this 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 hint that these other people that you hear about and these other myths are probably the identified with these nephilim before the flood yeah um now, one of the difficulties that I've always thought about is, you know, how, how does the record get passed from the antediluvian age to the post-diluvian age, the world we're living in now? Adam, or Noah, rather, and his sons, I guess, would have had to carry those records with them, correct? I think that's what happened. And in fact, you've got uh, evidence that Moses was the editor of Genesis. Well, he was the author of uh the other four books of the Torah, but he was born long after Genesis. But I think mm-hmm. this case is that um, the evidence that he has been the editor of it, of much older documents. Sometimes you see his editorial comments explaining things to the Israelites who came out of Egypt. You say, well, this guy, this city is like Zoar in, 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 um, in Egypt, I think it was. I mean, have to explain, why would you have to explain what Hebron is like? Hmm. Everyone in Israel knew what Hebron was like. It's a major city, but for the people coming out of Israel, he had to explain what Hebron was like. So that, um, but then you have Genesis ten nineteen. It says, "As you go towards Sodom and Gomorrah." Here's a clue there, because uh, what if you saw a, a tourist guidebook that said, as you go towards the Twin Towers, what would you yeah. conclude about the date of that writing? It was written in the 90s, yeah. Yeah, yeah, or, yeah. Or, or prior. 
Yeah, so it means it must have been written before Solomon and Gomorrah were, were totally destroyed. It was, they were oh. still landmarks. So, so you see, there's where Moses did not bother to edit uh, the the much older document he had access to. Okay, so, so well, that's very interesting. Yeah, Moses was the editor of Genesis, but the author of the other books. I believe so. Um, one of my favorite lines is when Moses says, and Moses was the most humble man uh, in all the earth. And I, I think Moses wrote those words. It's, it's, it's a figure of special Eliaism where you write, you write in third person. Julius Caesar did that a lot too. He would often write Caesar did this. Caesar was taken by surprise. He wrote in the third person as well. So mm. Moses doing it is not necessarily that unusual. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. When it comes to the Nephilim then, what are the different theories about the Nephilim? I know where you land, but what are some of the other theories that are out there? Probably the most uh, uh, common one in the sort of conservative Christian circles is that the sons of God meant the descendants of Seth, the godly people who were from Seth, and that the daughters of men referred to the ungodly descendants of the wicked Cain. And it was intermarriage between these groups is what this passage was talking about. Um, and they come up with some rationalization which might seem plausible on the surface. I, I think they are mistaken, but I, I don't. I doesn't mean they're there. They didn't hold a high view of scripture. I just think they're mistaken. That's the difference there. Okay. I mean, for instance, Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters, not just Cain and, and Seth. There are other lines uh, of humanity coming from Adam and Eve, so they've overlooked those are the other parts. Mm -hmm. um, another thing is that not all the descendants of Seth were necessarily bad people, because you look at two of the names, they have the name L in the name of the people in Genesis 4, which implies that the parents gave them a name re reflecting that they knew the true God. This is in the, the line of Cain. Is that what you're Yes. Okay. Oh, that's so, interesting. Yeah, so it means the parents may have given them names showing they knew the true God and wanted to dedicate their child to the true God, Elohim. That's the mm -hmm. name, El. Uh, so does it mean just because Cain was a bad guy doesn't mean all his descendants were bad people? Right, right. Yeah, the, okay. So so this, this idea that you had all the evil on one side, one line, and then and you we're only going to focus on these two lines. And then you've got all the good on the other side. Plus, um, I heard one speaker, uh, Doug Wilson, recently said, you know, you'd have to explain why is all the masculinity on one side and all the femininity. On yeah, the well, that's the thing because if you have intermarried between these things, why isn't it the other way around? Why don't you have daughters of God and sons of kings? That's a good point that he makes, and he's a young earth guy as well. <laughs> the other thing is not in most of the people of Cain's of Seth's line are not godly. I mean, most of them were wiped out. Only Noah and his family survived, so most of the Sethites were very were ungodly as well. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point, right? And, and how is it godly to marry an unbeliever? <laughs> That's true. So, yeah. I mean, I think it leads to a few more problems than it solves. That's a good point because so where I've gone just to, just to, to strengthen the case that I don't agree with, just so I can make sure that I, I could, you know, refute it is you do have in ancient Israel in like, like, like pre-exilic Israel, you, and maybe actually in post-exilic Israel too, you do have men who were marrying Canaanite women. Mm -hmm. And so you could say, well, that's the sons of, God, daughter, and it's sort of an analogous thing there. But the 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 sons there 
are not called righteous or anything like that. I mean, they're they're clearly right. condemned. It's it's viewed as very sinful. Uh, but then on the other, the other point, uh, if these people from ungodly nations like Moabite, Moab, the son of uh, uh, who is formed by incest of Lot and his daughter, and if uh, that's Ruth, she married into the Israelite because she accepted the true Israelite God. So even if you have a bad ancestor, if you accept the true true God, God will yeah. accept you. Okay. And God accepted Ruth. I and mean, Ruth is in the Messianic land. He's the, she's the ancestor of David and therefore the ancestor of Jesus himself. And then you have Rahab, the Canaanite, who was rewarded for hiding the Israelite uh, spies. She's also in the Messianic line. Mm-hmm. So she was accepted as part of the Israelite commonwealth. She married an Israelite and yes. became an ancestor of David and Jesus. Yes, and the Syrophoenician woman, even in the New Testament, mm-hmm. uh, who Jesus said, I haven't even seen faith like this in Israel. Talking yeah. about, she's a Canaanite woman. So, yeah. And, the, and to the centurion as well, who just said, well, Jesus can do it. Don't bother getting, uh, disturbing him because he, he can do it by a word of his power. And, and right. there's no no Jew who had this, the faith of this Israelite, of this Roman centurion, right? Yes, yes. Okay, so that's good. Well, well, I'm convinced. Uh, I know not everyone's going to be convinced, mm-hmm. but I think a lot of our listeners are still working through these. these well, okay, the main argument you get is because Jesus said angels um, um, don't marry. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah, but if you go carefully, he said he was talking about what would happen to people in heaven. People would in heaven will be like angels in heaven and don't marry, but Mm -hmm. people on earth marry. So maybe these fallen angels also married. They were not supposed to. In fact, when you look at Second Peter and Jude, it's very clear they were punished uh, by being thrown into Tartarus, um, in chains in Tartarus because of this evil deed they did. Yeah. And you look at what they say is it was like the sin of the Sodomites going after strange flesh. So what, what, do they, what do you mean? If it doesn't mean Genesis 6 where these angels were going after human flesh, which they were not supposed to do, I, I don't know what it's supposed to mean. There's no reference to these um New Testament passage. If you throw out Genesis six, yeah, they dangle sort of rootlessly. What, what, what are you talking about? Unless yeah. he's talking about what the angels did to the human women, the strange flesh. Yeah, and and if if anything, you could view that what the way Jesus phrases it. He doesn't say they're just they're like angels. They're like the angels in heaven mm-hmm. specifically yes. the ones who did not leave, as Peter I think mm-hmm. puts it, they did yes. not leave their place of habitation. So so Jesus is. You could even view it as he's actually specifically referring to the angels in heaven because he understands his audience knows, but there are some angels who are not in heaven. I'm not talking about those. We all know what happened to those. Yes. Those ones left their place of habitation. They went down. They had uh, children with the daughters of men, and they are now in Tartarus, as you mentioned earlier. But there so, are some godly angels, like there's some godly angels who who ate food with Abraham. So it means when right. they, when you look at the angels, when they appear in the Bible, they always appear like men, never like women. Uh, okay, yeah. they're always men. Mm-hmm. But then you got these uh, three men who came to Abraham and, and they ate with him. So clearly when they do that, they have the ability to digest food. So maybe these ungodly ones had the ability to procreate too. I mean, that's yeah. the sort of thing. Let's, um, we don't really know much about them, except that they can take on human form. Uh, most of the time they're doing it for God uh, as a messenger of God, but these people, these angels were doing it as, as messengers of Satan, trying to corrupt the seed of the woman. That's what they were doing and they were punished for it. Yeah. So, speaking of the the physical abilities of angelic or spiritual beings, mm. to, to what extent do you think that there was genetic manipulation going on in the antediluvian age? 
not very much. I, I think that's. Uh, I think it's a case of supernatural things. I don't think there's any natural genetic manipulation. I think. Um, there are two mistakes to make is that primitive people were stupid. That's one mistake. It's called mm -hmm. chronological snobbery. The other mistake is to overestimate the abilities of the pre-arc people uh, because the reason science grew up in medieval Europe is because of the biblical worldview. You have this idea of a divine lawmaker and uh, who, who made laws. He's a god of order, not the order of god of confusion. And that's why science grew up in the Middle Ages first, okay? Yeah. But the antediluvian civilization was not very godly. So they wouldn't have had science. I don't believe they would have had science. I mean, we look at yeah. what did Noah had to build his ark with. He had to use gopher. He didn't have a titanium alloy. Didn't right, have an outboard right. motor or right. hovercraft engines. He, he just had a, a floating box-shaped thing made of, of a wooden stuff with some pitch, which you get from boiling pine resin, resin, not um, sort of Teflon or anything like that. Okay, so yeah. we can't overestimate what Noah had available. He had metal tools that, that we know of because mm -hmm. um, some of Cain's people descendants invented metalworking. Mm -hmm. So he had that, but he didn't have titanium alloys, though. Well, so, so I wonder, are you familiar at all with some of the like Indian myths? Um, I don't know if they're in the Vedas or what, where it talks about flying machines, Vimanas and mercury powered craft, and even what sounds like atomic bombs, you know, sand mm. turning to glass and people's hair falling out and that kind of thing. I'm do not you, familiar. You, sorry. No. Okay. Okay. Sorry. No, no, that, no, that's, that's fine. I, I wasn't sure if you'd looked into that because you know, what you said was, it's 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 a realization I think I've been coming to lately is prior to the flood they would not have had science because no. science arose from the biblical worldview. Correct. So yeah, you're right. So how do they get now? What do you make of? Okay, maybe this answer is obvious. I'm I'm speculating with you because I feel like if anyone's gonna gonna have a, a good opinion on these, I think it'd be you. Um, when it comes to the dinosaurs, hear me out on this. The dinosaurs are megalithic or uh you know mega megafauna you know they're huge mm -hmm. some um, yes so, some of them that's right i know the average size was was a lot smaller but you do have some that are huge and i know you've got you've got megafauna of all kinds not just reptilian mm -hmm. but um some of these beasts seem to be like killing machines you know you look at the t-rex you look at the velociraptor and things do, do you think um you know when you get into some of the extra biblical literature there's some evidence that it wasn't just um it wasn't just uh, human beings that were involved in this whole uh, angelic uh, travesty, but it might have been even the animal kingdom as well. Could that have produced giant animals in the same way that it produced I don't believe animals? we need that. I think uh, uh, the dinosaurs are best explained as being creations of God. They were created originally vegetarian, uh, but after the fall, they became uh, killing some of them became killing machines, but I think they are natural. They were they were created. In fact, I've just completed a dinosaur book uh, with Joel Tay, quite a major um, book on creation, book on dinosaurs. That's the latest project I've been working on. Hmm. And I think uh, they're explainable as, as created. They're, they're, they're amazing creations. I mean, I think uh, you look at them and there's some of the amazing designs, um, the super composite armor of the Ankylosaurus, for instance, and you have um, uh, super strong, even though the T-Rex muscles were, 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 arms were tiny by 
compared to the body there is see they could curl a, a 400 pounds each okay so they're not they were not weak at all huh. uh, and so and then you think of what it would have taken for a brachiosaurus to pump blood up to the um to its brain uh because they're actually only just working out now how giraffes can do it and brachiosaurus is three times taller than giraffes right. there's some amazing design features there but i don't think you need to talk about uh, satanic or alien beings to explain uh, the dinosaurs i think they were created by god they they were part of the fort they they, they fell and became meat eaters after the fall and by the time of the flood they were quite some of them were quite clearly meat eaters you can see things like um a t-rex tooth in a uh hadrosaur bone which had healed over so the hadrosaur the duckbill dinosaur escaped the predator and had a chance for the bone to heal but the bone was the tooth was stuck in the bone so you see oh. they were quite clearly predating you can look yeah. at the dinosaur coprolites the fossilized dung which actually shows they were eating other animals by then but that's uh, 1600 years after the creation okay so created okay. very good but they, they became meaties after the fall so i don't think you need any sort of supernatural thing to explain all that okay that's that's super helpful i i appreciate that so in, in that regard we could look at dinosaurs the same way we look at any meat-eating carnivorous predator yes originally created to to not eat meat not eat yes, animals correct. but since the fall um showing different characteristics yep. um do you uh so so the dinosaurs were not nephilim beasts do no, you think not, no. do you think that um do we have evidence today do do we perhaps have skeletal or fossilized evidence of the nephilim could they be the neanderthals in any way no well see neanderthals and the and things like the homo erectus and the denisovans they were clearly uh post-flood humans i mean you can tell there were the neanderthals buried their dead okay so they're, they're not flood de deposits they're actually clearly in a time after the flood after the tower of babel i mean you think of what babel happened you see dividing according to family clan groups and a lot of the family would not have anyone there who knew how to build a city or to even and make metals from ores and so they might find stone as the best uh, stuff they have for tools and maybe a cave is the best thing they can use for a dwelling not because mm. they are they are stupid people but just lot, lost a lot of the knowledge that the whole population had acquired because they're only a small part of that knowledge and they broke off yeah. and we can tell they're very intelligent people but they're definitely not nephilim no because the nephilim were all wiped out during the, by the flood um, but what about where it says they were in those days and also afterwards? Is that figurative language? Well, because that Genesis 6 was written, you can tell that God has said, well, I'm going to give uh, mankind 120 years. So you're talking mm. about 120 years before the judgment would come in the form of the flood. So at that time, there were these um, angels, uh, this B'nai Elohim, which always, by the way, means angel in Hebrew. The, the mm. word sons of God refers to angels. It doesn't refer to people back in the Old Testament. Okay, that's another proof it's angelic. It's what the Hebrew says. Um, but uh, after that means up to the 20, 120 years before the oh. flood. Okay. Okay. So the 120 years is not the limit on man's lifespan. It, well, it can't be because otherwise the Bible can't, is, is, is incorrect because you've had people living after 120 years long after the flood. In fact, even into modern times, a lady called Jeanne, Jeanne Calment, a French lady last century, he lived to 122. Okay. And okay. in fact, you've got even in uh, the kings of the time of the kings, you have Jehoiada who lived to 130. Oh, is that right? 
Yeah, yeah. So even that's a very exceptional thing. But it's, you can look at the lifespan. There's all people living way past. I mean, Abraham lived to 175. Isaac to 180. Yeah. I think um, Jacob well past 140 something. I think I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, so you have people living past that time. Aaron the priest lived to 123, if I recall correctly. So it would mean the Bible's be... wrong, right? Uh, which of course is right. not. Right, right. Um, and and what what about you know could the exception prove the rule? In other words, it's so outrageous for someone to live to 122 simply because we all know no one lives past 120, kind of thing. Well, I mean, there's a lot of exceptions then. Okay. Well, I mean, okay. look at Genesis 11. They're all, uh, uh, in fact, all the people in Genesis 11 live way past 120, and that's yeah. all after the flood. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Um, so this is referring to the time till the whole of mankind was going to be uh, judged by the flood. So, so he's giving mankind 120 years to repent, otherwise a flood would come and destroy okay. them. Okay, so that's good. So 120 years um, refers to the time before the flood, and that would explain how it was that Scripture can say they were in the earth in those days and also afterwards. In yes. other words, they were they were there, and then they were after God made his decree for the next 120 years. Correct. Uh, what about the Goliath and the sons of Gath, uh, the the Rephaim and and people, even, you know, there was, seemed to be some giant Canaanites and Philistines. Well, there were giants, but not giant. Giants are not a Nephilim necessarily, because the word Nephilim doesn't actually mean giant. That's the sort of a, in the King James, which goes back to the Latin Vulgate, which is gigantes, and that mm -hmm. goes with the Septuagint, or the Greek says gigantes there, because um, when you look at the context of why the translation of the Septuagint chose gigantes because the gigantes mean in Greek means earthborn, born of the earth goddess. So mm -hmm. it implies a sort of um, a divine uh, human, uh, a sort of divine parentage or, or quasi divine demigod type parentage. That's where the word gigantes comes from, the earthborn people. So it doesn't necessarily mean the huge size of them. It doesn't I mean, mean gigantic. Well, I think uh, that's why I think I, I prefer just saying Nephilim and letting people work out. So the Hebrew uh, hints of being the the fallen ones, Nephilim in Hebrew means fall. So mm -hmm. somehow these are the fallen ones, uh, um, not necessarily the gigantic ones. I mean, you got people a uh, hundred years ago. Robert Wadlow reached the height of eight feet eleven inches. He was not a Nephilim, okay? He was not one of the Nephilim. Okay. <laughs> right. And the thing is, everyone who's over who's been about over eight feet tall in modern times always has problems. We're not our human body plan is not really designed for people to be much over about seven and a half feet. When you start getting above that, uh, problems happen. There's usually an abnormality happening there. Yeah, you know, that's something I've been wondering about as well, because it's not only human beings but i mean you've got some of these megafauna i mean look at like a brachiosaurus supersaurus some of these animals I, correct me if i'm wrong they couldn't even survive in today's climate with today's gravity right i mean how well i don't know because they seem to be uh, the when you have much larger creatures they're not just scaled up evenly they're scaled so the uh their, their legs are much thicker um they're much uh thicker legs look at the elephant compared to a uh, 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 the elephant's not a scaled up dog okay right, their legs are much right. thicker proportionally so i think they could survive in modern times and it's, it seems very clear that brachiosaurus and those sort of things were land animals they were not water creatures mm. They lived on the land, and they were clearly designed to cope with uh, with the gravity. Okay. I mean, look at the lightning. The, the bones had hollows, and so they seem to be optimized to, to, mm. to support lots of weight. There's a lot of optimi optimization for very large, like even the arch shape of the back. The arch is a very strong engineering structure. You look at the arch bridges. 
and the arch supports the bridge uh, with yeah. some struts, for instance, with, with some with, um, lines, uh, some wires. Okay, so they, they, even the arching of the back is, is a support for uh, massive weight. So they, they, were, they were designed to cope with large sizes. And I think also even the oxygen would have been enough for them. I don't know exactly. It's one of the mysteries that I'd like to find out if we had soft tissues of a brachiosaurus. I'd love to know how they cope with the, um, the size, the blood pressure issues, the getting enough oxygen to the whole body. Um, but I think they, they must have had something. Yeah, and there is soft tissue out there, right? There's, oh, yes. there's blood tissue and, and all even sorts of DNA. There's even yeah. DNA? Yes. Um, Dr. Mary Schweitz has discovered DNA in a hypacrosaurus and in a T-Rex. And uh, uh, there are different biochemical tests you use to detect DNA. There's a fluorescent molecule called DAPI, which will give a signal if it actually lands in the groove of the double helix of the DNA. And they've found it. And in the right oh, position okay. expected. And yet DNA should have been totally broken down in a fraction of the time because you measure... Uh, how fast DNA breaks down, freeze it to minus five Celsius, about um, 25 Fahrenheit, okay? Uh, you might get it surviving to 6.8 million years and it's completely broken apart. But these dinosaurs are meant to be 10 times older mm -hmm. and also lived in warm climates where the breakdown is much faster. So I think that what we're seeing in the dinosaur is about the right ballpark uh, of something which is about four and a half thousand years old. That's a sort of um, the right ballpark for the amount of DNA observed in these things. Oh, that's and also soft tissue collagen, actin, uh, intact blood cells and, and bone cells are found there. Stretchy soft tissue that's still elastic. Are the when you dissolve the hard stuff of the bone and what's left behind are, the, are some blood vessels which are still elastic. So that's quite, quite something. You know, it just goes to show you how. It makes sense that science arose from the biblical worldview, from people who are devout Christians, at least mm -hmm. professing Christians, because it, what happens is, what I, well, what I've seen, maybe you've seen something similar, is when confronted with the evidence, people who don't subscribe to the biblical worldview, instead of changing their worldview, they they just simply change their expectations. You know, I've heard people yeah. say, well, well, what do you know? I, I guess soft tissue can last 65 million years. And that's just so contrary to everything we know about. Well, I mean, Dr. Schweitz is trying to say, well, maybe you have iron uh, preserving them, but the reaction right. she proposes is called the phantom reaction. Now, I'm a chemist by training, okay? The phantom reaction is usually used to destroy organic matter. Huh. Okay, and there are certain things that would definitely destroy which she has actually found in these tissues. So she can't say phantom reaction preserved it, but then it would destroy the things she's found. Hmm. Okay, so you can't have it both ways. You can't actually say the phantom reaction happened randomly and actually didn't do everything it would normally do. Hmm. Interesting. So it doesn't work chemically. So dinosaurs are fascinating. Mm -hmm. They are. Uh, you know, my 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 kids are into. I could probably talk to you about them all day. Well, you'd like my book then? Hopefully, my my forthcoming book on it. And what's, what's the title of that again? Uh, Titans of the Earth, uh, Air, and Sea. Oh, nice. But and it hasn't come out yet because it's all going to try and, and lay it out and illustrate it and all that. But the text is written. Who is the intended audience? Well, basically high school and above. Okay. We have stuff for the juniors. We've got things like um, Dinosaur with Mr. Hib. We've got uh, junior books, for, but uh, this is the first one for the uh, sort of adult audience. Okay. Okay. Well, yeah. All the all the kids like me who grew up in the eighties and nineties and you know loved you know Jurassic Park. Oh yeah. Uh, we're we're all in our thirties and forties now. I'm thirty seven, almost thirty eight. Quite young, okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, 
so yeah, we, we need that stuff. We, we want to, uh, we want the, that information. Well, hopefully it's as up-to-date as possible because, I mean, uh, the books that I grew up as a kid, being a bit older than you, uh, had a lot of stuff which is wrong, like Dinah's the tripod structure of the T-Rex and the mm. tail dragging on the ground. That's totally wrong, mm. which, by the way, is why I think some of these dinosaur things like the Ica stones are not genuine because they, put, they drew the dinosaurs as people think they looked like um, 50 to 100 years ago. Right. But it's clearly not what they actually looked like, but it's what a forger would have done. Uh, if he was trying to make it look like the dinosaur according to the um, view of the day. Okay. And just for those who don't know, the Ica stones are a number of stones people found with paintings on them of human beings riding on triceratops and things like that, correct? Yeah, I, I think they're not to be trusted. I mean, there's plenty of good evidence out there. I think we should stay away from the dubious uh, evidence like the Ica stones. Yeah. And a lot yeah. of the cryptozoology I just don't think is, is, is good, good evidence. So Mokali Mabembe, not a no. not an apatosaurus. No. Uh, well, okay, I won't say no, but I'm saying you got to prove it. Well, not you, but the gen generic yeah. you. You have to prove a picture. I mean, I mean, you can't say I don't want to go into to Congo because I'm afraid of a dinosaur. Well, just take out your camera. That seems to scare them right away. Hmm. <laughs> right. No one, no one can get a picture of them. I mean, preferably a DNA sample would be nice, but even if it's just a picture, um, let yeah. alone something in a cage or a DNA. I don't want to hear excuses. I want to hear. I want to see the evidence. Otherwise, you haven't got it. Yeah. Okay. So, alien life. There. Mm. This. This is the topic du jour. Oh Dr. yes. Sarfati, because, as I'm sure you're well aware, all of these UFO sightings have become declassified. These are verified sightings by the U.S. Mm. military. They. They. They are doing things that. One seemed to transcend the laws of gravity, both in the air and submerged in the water. Um, and then they're also behaving in ways that makes it look as though they're anticipating the movements of our military craft. Um, and then they're messing with our nuclear silos and things like that. So, of course, there's all kinds of theories. Is this inner, you know, Chinese tech? Is this a black ops from the United States? Probably, is this yeah. extraterrestrial? And then there's the whole... There's that aspect of it. And then there's the whole like alien abduction side where people have these encounters. And so how do we even enter into this discussion? Where do we even start as Bible-believing Christians? Oh, okay. I, mean, I think the usual thing is uh, think horses, not zebras, as the, as the saying goes. I think most of these sightings are natural phenomena and mistaken for aliens. I think that's probably what counts for most of them. Or else uh, some of the things in the Cold War – people wouldn't know know their own government's Cold War technology, for instance, and therefore they see a rocket ship being tested, and if they're a fighter pilot, this rocket ship goes right past them. They've got no idea what it is because they didn't know their own government was working on these things. Mm -hmm. So it might be something sort of um, – it's a, it's a government um, secret, but it's actually something relatively innocent. It's just the, the space program had not yet been revealed um, as it would be in the 60s. Okay, So you've got a few things like that which have, have reasonably – straightforward explanations i think it's the minority where you have to get into some sort of spiritual thing where i think there might be some demonic beings doing some bad things to people and it's really quite interesting that uh, it seems that true christians the people walk the walk christians are the ones who are immune from these sorts of um, alien abduction experiences which yeah. of course is the bible says that if you accept christ the holy spirit indwells you and the holy spirit repels any demonic spirits far too strong for demonic spirits greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world yeah so you, we have a lot of 
test the, the, the film we have, the documentary, Alien Intrusion, has these testings of people who were oppressed by these things, but they stopped being oppressed once they accepted Christ into their life and the Holy Spirit indwelling uh, protect, for, provided protection against this stuff. Isn't that amazing? That, that, that's, mm. There's two elements of these abduction and, and supposed alien encounters that always fascinated me. And one is that they these aliens always come with some unbiblical message from the stars. Oh, Even yes. if they seem to possess advanced information, it's always, you know, uh, all the world's religions are wrong, and especially Christianity. Oh, of course, and then, yes. <laughs> and then the abduction experience seems to stop when the, um, when it's, if it's a believer, when mm. they call on the name of Jesus Christ. And it's like, well, I, I got to tell you, I've had bad dreams where mm -hmm. where I'm being oppressed or attacked or something, and I'll call in the name of Jesus, and guess what? I wake up from the dream. It sounds a little wow. bit like that, you know. So, um, the, that that to me smacks of a spiritual warfare kind of thing, not an extraterrestrial humanoid person who's coming a craft or something no especially I mean, also uh we we know what hypnosis can do for people i mean even human hypnosis can make people think all sorts of weird things so if these aliens are doing some sort of hypnotic technology that would actually um give rise to these um illusions that people have of being abducted but what actually really happened to them i, I think they probably stayed right where they were you said technology do you do you think that aliens can use technology how would that work well, I mean, for one thing, as we say in our film, there's this uh, trying to get from one star to the other is way beyond even the laws of physics to do. I did the calculations myself on the, on our website. Um, take a spaceship to a third of the speed of light you need more energy than than it has than the whole uh, of the world energy production and also to try to stop it and not get crushed by g-forces you need the whole length of the solar system to stop the thing to break it uh, evenly <laughs> wow. and you couldn't turn because a lurching force would kill you unless you turned on a radius much uh, bigger than the entire solar system okay so you couldn't turn it on earth's radius of all because you can calculate that the g-force would crush you if you try to and this is only one third of light speed is uh, that problem solved perhaps by anti-gravitational technology where you create your own inertia you know i mean warp uh, sort of warp thing warp warping space but i think the other thing is uh, you could hit a grain of dust on um, traveling at that sort of even sublight speed and you just the, the theory of formula is it's it's um e equals a um half mv squared okay so you square the velocity um you you Velocity goes up by tenfold. The the energy goes up by a hundredfold. Okay. Okay. See, if you have something going at ten thousand times faster than the fastest rocket today, the the energies involved and the g force, the the turning g force are about a hundred million times greater. Wow. And okay. So and warping of space, all you're doing is concentrating the, the these dust grains in front of you, so you can hit more of them. But it's even <laughs> a single dust grain is like like um, like several tons of TNT exploding when it hits you. That, that's huh. that's the sort of speed i think people overlook just simple things like which is really i think uh, just first year university physics interesting so Not that difficult to calculate but it would actually the, the dust grain collision at that speed would, would, would blow the ship up and there's no there's no way to create a sort of gravitational repellent field that would just push everything out of the way before it hits you well how much energy you're going to need though you see if it's uh, hitting you at this sort of energy you need that sort of energy the creation to repel it that way yeah. so wow uh so where you get it from even antimatter which is a the, the highest you can possibly go is antimatter and matter collision, which is total conversion of mass to energy. Even that would not be enough. Wow. So, I mean, you can't get better than that. Okay. Okay. So it, it seems like then 
any kind of interstellar inter extrasolar system uh, interplanetary travel not very likely no. um that being said then the the um the alien phenomenon Mm-hmm. not not aliens is it is it is it a demonic deception or you think it's either black ops tech that we don't know about or just uh, uh illusion? I, I say most of it's natural phenomena uh, which have been misidentified or just fairly harmless thing like an airship that's coated with fluorescent paint can be look like a ufo i mean sure. okay i've seen that happen in brisbane my goodness what's that thing well, you realize it's, it's just an airship that's uh, fluorescent okay um but i think maybe some of it was some of the reports from the 50s would be um government black ops the the rocket program a space program because rockets go much faster than any airplane can go right, right. um okay. i can imagine oh you've got to escape by this thing what's this i don't know what this is but they didn't know what, what a rocket was okay sure. uh, yeah. but i think maybe it's a, a, a fraction maybe 10 percent are not explainable this way and that seems to be more of the demonic thing okay um you know this goes back to what we were talking about earlier when it comes to angelic beings being able Mm -hmm. to interact physically so you've got you mentioned the example of the angel being able to eat food clearly there's some sort of digestion going Mm -hmm. on the the food's not just disappearing so something happens to it um i i heard recently and i don't remember where this was but someone was was hypothesizing that perhaps uh, a, a demon or a spirit being of some kind can manipulate matter in in really what amounts to a, a pretty rudimentary simple way you know into the shape of a disc in the shape of a sphere and you know these guys are moving fast i mean they're they're demonic they're demon they're spiritual being so they're just kind of like moving these things around maybe even the way that we might move a, a cursor around on our computer screen or something like that and to us it looks like a craft, but, but there seems to be no wind resistance, no water resistance when they, you know, when they become submerged, uh, submersible. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what do you think about that? Could that, could that be just manipulation of light and, and matter? Well, it's, I think possibly, but it's also interesting. When you look at the history of these encounters, they, the encounters always seem to match what we expect to find in the, in the sort of intelligentsia of the culture. I mean, one time they were claimed to be from Mars. Uh, now we know that Mars hasn't got life, so they go a bit further. And then uh, Alpha Centauri, well, maybe not, because we sort of a bit close to that, so maybe a bit further than that. But they seem to get, um, change their story depending on what people were willing to accept as it's um, uh, people accepting some sort of a shield flying shield if that's all they knew then it becomes something a bit more when the the technology gets a bit better and it seems to match what people are expecting aliens to look like that's interesting and if you look at the even the ancient um 1950s and 60s science fiction shows it's quite it's quite right ra- ra- rather strange what they thought the future would look like hmm. And in the, yet now we know where things like we actually have better thing. We don't have a flip up phone anymore, do we? Like this in Star Trek, the, the, which we, we used to have flip those things, but now we don't have those. So a lot of the things you wonder, you, you they, but the aliens seem to match what was expected of them. Yeah. Now that that's interesting. Um. All right. Now we do have some listener mm-hmm. questions, but before we get to that, sure. Um. One of the major focuses of this show and and our ministry the think institute is we want to help dads lead their families in defending the truth mm-hmm. of the christian message so right. kids are interested in dinosaurs oh, kids yes. are interested in you know my my oldest jacob is really into technology anything mm-hmm. anything tech he loves it how how can we as dads we have a lot of young dads who listen to this show how can they 
how can they prepare themselves and how can they lead their families in being the first one to introduce these conversations from a biblical mm. perspective so that the public schools or the the media or w- what have you doesn't get to their kid first how can they, how can dads prepare to have these conversations well i mean there are resources we have i mean we have a great magazine it's been going for 30, 40 something years called creation magazine that's something for the whole family to to go through together um there's a kids page kids section four page just for the younger kids but most of it's for any age group um so that might be something the whole family can enjoy the, our creation magazine but it comes up every four every uh, sorry four times a year so it's something that will keep on feeding you you see what kind of articles are in creation magazine well we have also every like for instance every magazine has an interview with a phd scientist so, so if your kids are interested in science well here are some good role models these are our top scientists today who believe the bible so it shows you don't have to throw your brain out um or to th- uh, throw away science to believe the bible we've got every interview showing that every interview has an animal feature we usually have something on dinosaurs every issue something on why creation matters um we have another human interest interview i always want to have some design things i like them um, the topic of design and living things a lot so we try and have some of that as uh, natural selection we try and cover because mm. that's, that's a commonly misunderstood thing yeah I love that because you need good, we need, as speaking as dad myself, we need that yeah. kind of quality information and, uh, and, and resources out there because uh, the other side is, as you said at the beginning of our talk, the other side is, is ubiquitous. Yeah. Um, my, my son for his birthday, my, my uh, third born got this dig your own dinosaur tooth. Uh, little mm-hmm. kit from National Geographic. And oh, as you yes. can imagine, the, the T-Rex on the cover had what looked like hair like mine, but it was supposed to be feathers. Oh, uh, yes. On, okay. Mm-hmm. On top of its head. And then in the inside, mm-hmm. it said, you know, uh, it came with some, uh, what is it called? A corpulite or a dinosaur poop. A corpulite. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it said, it's, you know, roughly 60 million, 65 mm-hmm. million years old. And, and so Lucas and I were having a good laugh about right, that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but we need something from the other side. We need, it's not enough to just, laugh at the unbiblical view you know we want we want to feed right. ourselves with the the biblical view and, and i would rather do that than, uh, because often uh, if all you do is laughing at the other side often you don't really understand what the other side is coming from Correct. so so we right. do try and say well this is what evolution is saying this is why they're wrong we try not to use to, to knock down straw men yes. they do it to us plenty of times of course um but we we try not to we try and actually say well this is what they really believe and why we think it it is not right Okay, so that's good. So Creation Magazine mm-hmm. um, would be, sounds like something that dads can get and read with their whole families. There's exactly. a section for the kids. Okay, oh, that's really helpful. I mean, I'm actually co-authoring uh, uh, the kids section. Uh, it's on astronomy topics. Oh, really? It's for, for, for a 12-part series over three years. It's on astronomy. Hopefully, there'll be a book soon. Uh, but it's been other things before. Like, we did basically a cut-down version of Creation Answers book, which is one of our core books. We basically had a kid's version of that over several issues. Yeah, and this is all available at creation.com? Oh, yes. Oh, we try. Yes. It's got uh, also there are about uh, 15,000 articles on this site, so you're not going to run out of reading material anytime soon, I think. You know, um, you're 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 killing me right now because um, I've got a problem with buying books. Um, okay. And my my problem is that I buy a lot of books, and I don't well, I don't e-book. view it as a problem. What's We've that? Got e-book. All our books are on uh, Kindle and and uh, Mobile, okay. Kindle and ebook as well. So that might Kindle save and something. E-book. 
That that's good. That's good. Yes. But there's nothing like having the physical book. So, right. I, I tend to agree with that. But when I'm when I'm flying, I like to have the ebook because it's much easier to have, to have everything on my phone rather than take a library with me. Uh, mm-hmm. Also, all our videos have uh, down Moby down Wimpy for downloads and streaming as well. So we try oh. to sort of cut down on on physical stuff. But I mean, I'm one who also prefers the physical book. Okay, I agree with okay. you. Okay. Okay. Cool. Fashion that way. Yeah. So. Some questions came in from, okay. we've got a, a Facebook group. It's called the Think Squad. Think Squad, and, okay. Wow. Yes. And I'm going to, I'll read you the questions. And mm-hmm. some of these, I'm going to tell you, Dr. Sarfati, some of them, I don't have a clue what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. It's way outside my own sphere of, of knowledge. But maybe you'll know. And, if, and feel free if any of these, if you want to answer them, great. If not, that's okay too. Um, Dr. Sarfati, what are your thoughts on the G-U-L-O, Gulo pseudogene, shared mm. between humans and other primates, which is thought to have once produced vitamin C and now appears to be broken. The argument would be mm. that the theory of common descent explains why both humans and other primates share a broken gene, whereas it would have to mm. be explained by reference to an ad hoc just-so story on the assumption of polyphyletic polyphyletism mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, okay. well we do have answers on this it's not really my area but I mean a lot of these old arguments presuppose this, uh, this idea of junk DNA and now we actually yeah, know far genes. more about the genetic coding system and the so called junk is actually doing stuff so I'm actually uh, very wary of any argument which tries to make up as something as junk because we just don't know what it does and we do have articles on that Tagulo pseudogen which are quite sophisticated some of the early creation explanations were not quite correct because they were relying on evolutionary ideas so the idea was judging by early evolutionists we thought well maybe that's easy to explain because you have a mutational hotspot so you so you would expect to have the sort of mutations occurring because this is a, that's a place where it seems to be, um, mutate a lot uh, but now that seems to be relying too much on what the evolutionists were saying about the sequence and now uh, the modern view is is not that but i'll just paste that link in for you which is about a, a paper from uh, two phds uh, about the gulo pseudogene and why it doesn't prove common ancestors. There are too many anomalies to say that it actually is a common ancestor. Okay, so um, common descent. I mean, uh, right. So then, so just just so we're defining our terms, I want to make sure I understand this. Polyphyletism is um, is different kinds of creatures arising from different acts right, of creation yeah, rather yes. than common descent. Yes. Well, that's the thing, because most common descent arguments are really uh, evidence of common design, in my opinion, mm. or else they're things which are really the same created kind. Uh, humans and apes are not the same created kind, but I think, see, cats and uh, the, the tigers, lions, leopards, the, the domestic cats really are the same created kind mm-hmm. and the varieties of yeah. it. So I expect some common thing because they really are, do have a common ancestry in the pair of cats that were on board the ark. Okay, so sometimes it works, but apes and humans, no, there are too many differences for them to be the same created kind and also they claim about uh, 99% genetic similarity that's complete bunkum it's, it can't be more than about 95% it may well be as low as 85% huh really and it, yeah 99% it's, it's, it's one of these evolutionary myths that really needs to, to go away Okay. And by the way, since humans have about 3 billion letters of DNA even 1% means 30 million differences 
Really? Yeah. So one percent of three billion—that's thirty million—and yeah, that's yeah. supposed to arise. And they believe the apes and the humans split around six million years ago. You can't even explain thirty million differences in only six million years. So the problems, wow. um, even if you granted their uh, fairy story, but now it's actually more, uh, no more than. Yeah, at least, sorry, 5% difference and possibly as much as 15% difference. Okay, okay. So so those numbers can be deceptive. Mm -hmm. um, you know what? Actually, this is a question based on a conversation I had with my son, Jacob, yesterday because he uh -huh. just recently took a trip with my parents, his grandparents, down mm -hmm. to the Creation Museum in Kentucky oh, yes. mm -hmm. uh, from Answers in Genesis. Mm -hmm. And what he said, he came back, and I know he's got to be wrong on this, but I was debating. I'm debating my nine year old son about creation. Okay, science, well, okay? okay. And so he was saying that um, uh, birds that there, he believed that the museum was teaching that there was one bird kind, and that was comparable to like the one cat kind. And what I was saying is, uh, no, there must be different kinds of birds, yes. like a penguin and a flamingo. Those are not compatible. I think it's very a case of misunderstanding because even the Bible talks about different kinds of birds, different kinds of land creatures, different kinds of birds, which just meant flying creatures. Right. Okay. As a generic term, it's, the generic term in Hebrew, the off means anything that flew. So that term included bats and pterosaurs, not okay. just what we call birds. Oh, so okay. there, but there are a lot of different kinds of birds. I mean, uh, probably more different kinds of birds than there are of a lot of different other things. So and I'm pretty sure the Creation Museum was not saying one kind of bird. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I sorry. I assumed, but I wanted to get you on record. So now I can bring my son Jacob to this video and I can. Right. Show I, I'm pretty sure he must have misunderstood. In fact, even on the AIG website, there's things uh, about uh, talking about the created kinds of birds. And we interviewed um, a man called uh, um, the late John Alquist, who's actually done what he was actually a famous evolutionary bird taxonomist, expert hmm. in birds uh, and genetic analysis of them. And he became a young earth creationist before he died. Wow. Really? Yes. So so definitely there's more than one kind of bird. But the thing is the kind is probably at least as high as the family, if not even higher than the family, but at least as high as the family would be the kind. Okay. Okay. So jo Joseph David Deitzer wants to know how you got so good at chess. Oh, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm basically retired now. I'd say the uh, issue is, first of all, you've got to learn some of the basics, like how uh, different pieces were combined here, the tactics, learn a lot of the tactics, uh, because that's what will win most of the games for you. And also some of the the end games, because you get down to a certain, you've got to know how a few pieces work before you can work at how many pieces work. So these both the end games and tactics are probably the first thing you should be studying before you work out uh, how to play with the whole board of pieces, okay? okay? And then, okay, so a lot of studying of master games. I mean, because um, why reinvent the wheel when you've got uh, hundreds of years of chess history, people learning from the previous, uh, on the footsteps of giants? So you study the, the great masters of the game. That reminds me of, there was that show that came out, The Queen's Gambit. Yes. And she's... Interesting. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, I read the book years ago too. Uh, oh, is that right? I read the book when it came out in the mid '80s. Yes. Okay, I didn't know it was a book. The yeah, show was a book. Yeah. The show was interesting in terms of all of the chess, but there were other elements of the show where I'm like, mm. I can't, I can't watch this. They really? Just, they, okay. Yeah, they, they. 
Uh, for me, it, it offended my. Uh, oh, my they moral. took they took some things out which which I wouldn't have wanted to see uh, myself. There are some things I wouldn't have wanted to see, but other things. Yeah, you know, I, I see what you're saying, but I, I did watch it all the way through. Yeah, yeah, and, and you enjoyed it? it. Yeah, I did. You and also, you had uh, Gary Kasparov actually. Uh, I think was the one who made the games for them to play. It's actually very sophisticated chess games too. So high quality chess games in that too. Okay, so you're watching it as a, a chess master, and you're saying this is this is quality. This, it was so it was accurate in what they were portraying. Yeah. Oh, very much so. Okay. Uh, well, even it reminds you what chess was like in the '60s. It's changed a bit now, but it sort of reminds you what I used when, when I was younger. Uh, How has it changed? Oh, it's speed up, no adjournments. Okay, so you just play the game, play the game all the way through. And of course, you have computers now, which you didn't have back then. Hmm. And and also nowadays, you've got very strong female players, which you didn't have back then either. Which is which what is what makes her story so compelling. Yeah, but this is before you had the Polgar sisters. It was just before the Polgar sisters became so so good and sensational. And now okay. uh, it's almost a, that's what I'm saying. It's, it's something which is before the Polgar sisters and before computers, before all these sort of things. So it seemed a bit dated, but of course they set it back in, in, the, in the time it was written for in okay. the 60s. Yeah. Uh, David Palman wants to know if you could beat Tim McGrew at chess. I would, uh, judging by our different rating, we all chess players have ratings as an indication of strength. And the difference between the ratings is supposed to give a prediction of what sort of uh, score people would have against each other. And I've looked at them up. And I think I'm about 200 points above Dr. McGrew. So I'd score about three to one against him, I think. Okay. All right. Well, there's the gauntlet has been. It wouldn't be on. a pushover, but I think I wouldn't, I would win three to one. Okay. Yeah. When it comes to the age of the earth, where does it sit for you in terms of being a primary, secondary, tertiary issue, etc.? This question is coming from Kevin Blessem. Okay, I wrote an editorial in the magazine actually, just the, the latest creation magazine that's out. I've got the I'm the I was the rostered editor for this one. I wrote an editor editorial on the young earth, and I said, well, the young earth is not our axiom. Um, our axiom is the authority of scripture, the proposition of scripture. They're our axioms. The young earth is a theorem. It's something that's de deducible from the axioms, and the axioms are, for instance. The, the fact that Adam and Eve were there from the beginning of creation, as Jesus said, and they were there um, on day six after the beginning. And then you have the timeline from Genesis 5 and 11, which needs to be a tight time frame because you got to see Adam was 130 years, became the father of Seth. Now, even if the word father can mean grandfather or ancestor, there's still 130 years between the two names. Mm -hmm. So I think you've got a, a clear timeline there. And from that, um, as well as what I told you earlier about if you have millions of years, you have death before sin, both human and animal death before sin, all these things show that the young earth is a logical deduction. It's a theorem you could deduce from the axioms of Scripture. So it's not the primary, it's a deduction from our primary axiom, which is authority of Scripture. Okay, very good. So um, so we start with Scripture. We start with that, I mean, as a presuppositionalist, I would say that's our foundational presupposition. Mm -hmm. And then yeah. from there, we reason our way out. And one of those conclusions that seems to be inevitable. I mean, not again, not to say that someone is not a, a believer necessarily correct, to reject this, correct. Yeah. but but it seems to be unavoidable. Uh, a young Earth perspective. Correct. Yes. Okay. Um, last question. This is again coming from Kevin Blessing. He asks, "What resources would you recommend?" And these can be from from uh, creation.com in, in, in your ministry or anywhere. What resources do you recommend for Christians that want to go down 
as he calls it, the young earth rabbit hole. And they just want to just study as much as they can. Well, that's a bit of a pejorative, of course, you understand, because the young earth position, as I proved in my book, Refuting Compromise, that was a standard position of the early church. I mean, even you look at Augustine, who's one of the supposed to be the ones they they talk about, Q. Ross quotes, but he he talked about these people being deceived by highly mendacious documents that profess that the earth is millions of years, that thousands and thousands of years old, but we know from the Bible, it's only six, it's not even 6,000 years old yet he was saying and that's what you find people saying the world has not even reached six thousand years mm-hmm. augustine and oregon and martin luther calvin all said the world is not yet six thousand years old mm-hmm. and why do they say that because this is what the bible tells you if you go to the bible and look, let the text teach you teach you that's what you get it's only when you go outside the text that you get ideas of millions and billions of years and you can start with my book called refuting evolution that's one thing and also our book creation answers book which goes into i think 60 of the of the most asked questions in 20 chapters because i i do q a times a lot and those are the questions that usually come up are the ones mm-hmm. in the creation answers book and if you want to go into detail you can go to my genesis commentary 800 page commentary on genesis 1 to 11 called the genesis account that's one thing you can do if you really want to go quite deeply Pastors are using that commentary uh, to preach, to do expository preaching from Genesis. Okay. But okay. you go to creation.com because you can find 15,000 articles you can get for free too. And you've got a search button you can use that will actually find just about any topic you'd like to talk about, whether it's dinosaurs, the age of the earth, um, design, natural selection, mutations, genetics, uh, anthropology, history, archaeology. You'll find things about all those topics there. Wonderful. And I'm very interested to check to check out alien intrusion as well. That yes. A book and the video. video. Uh, so you can get the book on uh, with the electronic book if you want to, or you can get the hard mm-hmm. copy or else the video. Likewise, it's going to be a DVD or a Blu-ray, or as you, you can do the streaming as well, uh, MP4 streaming, which might be a bit cheaper. So cool. I'd really recommend uh, both the book and the DVD if you want to uh, okay. learn this by Gary Bates, both of those things, alien intrusion book and DVD. Perfect. I know that's going to be really helpful to Kevin and everybody else listening. Um, any closing thoughts? How can people get in touch with you? Well, it's a creation.com. There's a contact thing there for creation.com, uh, and you can uh, ask questions to people. Uh, we usually, if you want to ask a question about a topic, we'd like you to check the site first because we probably have a, an answer to the topic. But uh, by all means, if you can't find it there, we can try to help you. And we do, and most of our ministry is also speaking to churches. We, we come to church. We don't charge a set speaking fee to come to churches to, to give the Sunday morning uh, sermon uh, about why creation matters. And here is why you can trust the Bible right from Genesis 1 1. Perfect. Hmm. Um, Dr. Sarfati, this was a whirlwind. I mean, I appreciate you. I mean, I, I threw a lot of stuff at you over the last hour and some change, and I really appreciate you being willing to take my questions and uh, coming on. And um, I, I have the feeling that after this goes live, we're going to receive a lot more questions. So I, I might uh, might need to reach out to you guys again and sure. um, yeah. maybe we book another one. But I, this was, means, this was yeah. mm-hmm. really, really wonderful. So really appreciate it. Um, uh Take care. God bless. God bless you too. And there's the uh, Vulcan symbol, which is actually the Shin letter Hebrew is what it meant to be. It was originally, actually. Yes, they took that. Yeah. <laughs> Gene Roddenberry took that. Well, no, Spock, who was raised as an Orthodox Jew. Oh, and this that's is a rabbinic right. thing. He, yeah, he was. Oh, this right. is a rabbi. This is this letter Shin for Shaddai, El Shaddai, or Shalom, begins yeah. with this letter. 
That's why I, was I didn't know. Shin. I didn't yeah. know it was Shin. Although I should have known that. My my father in law is Roy Schwartz. He's a, a, a um, Messianic Jewish missionary. I'm a Messianic actually, Jew too, yeah. Um, so I'm sorry. What was that? I'm a Messianic Jew as well. Are you really? Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. But that's that's Safadi cool. is Hebrew for Frenchman. Oh, yeah, yeah. really? Mm-hmm. Huh? Yeah. I didn't, you know, I was as we were talking, I was kind of wondering, but uh, but no, that's that's very cool. Um, yeah, my my wife is. Uh, you know, she was she was raised as a believer, but her dad, my father-in-law, converted during the Jesus movement of the 1970s. Oh wow! Okay. And um, yeah, interesting. I hear my kids thumping something upstairs. Ooh. I better okay. I better go. Catch you then. Okay. Bye-bye. God bless you. Thank God you bless. again. I'll Thank I'll you. tag you and and everything. This will probably come out next week. Okay. I'll I'll, I'll put all my social media as well in. Okay. Thank you very much, Doctor Sarfati. Okay. Catch God you bless. later. Okay, bless. Bye bye. Okay, that about wraps it up for this episode. The Think Podcast is a production of the Think Institute and is produced by yours truly, Joel Sedecase. The Think Institute operates under Church Movements, a ministry of Crew under the division of Crew City. To learn about how to support the Think Institute and my family tax-free, go to thethink.institute slash partner. I hope you heard something helpful today. I know I did. Remember, this is not goodbye. This has just been a short stop on the journey as we learn to lead our families in defending the Christian message. And we'll see you next time. Until then, I hope it made you think. Mm-hmm.